This is Let's Break Good, the podcast where good is just not good enough. I'm your host, Joe Agoda, and on today's episode, we're talking about design for the 90%. The fact is, 90% of the world's technology is being designed for use by only 10% of the world's population. How then do you go about designing projects and products that will serve the other 90%? We'll be exploring a model developed at the top engineering school, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that will challenge you to think differently about every other approach you've learned about creating social good for the poor and vulnerable. What are the most important factors in designing for the 90%? What are the unheralded parts of achieving that impact that they will not teach you in any textbook but are absolutely critical to success. And what kind of mindset will you need to make it happen? So let's do it. Let's get started. I want to break free. I want to break free. Now, to get at the heart of what it takes to design for the 90%, I want to begin by telling you a story that will exemplify why so many charity and aid organizations are getting it wrong. Now, these folks are doing this for all the right reasons. However, it's not having the impact that they intend and their resources are falling short. So this story takes you back to the days when I was living and volunteering in a rural village in Uganda. This was 2006, and I was working with a community health organization embedded in the community. And over the months that I was living there, I saw more than a few failed aid projects that did not take into account the local attitudes, behaviors, and needs. The issue was people would fly in, spend a week giving out a resource or holding a training, and then fly out. And the big problem was that they had no idea that what they were doing was not being taken up by the community. Because what would happen is when the group, the charity group came, the community would celebrate for them. They would be, you know, really happy that they were there. Oftentimes they would bring some of the the women to the community. And I remember hearing the songs that they would sing and they would give them all these good vibes and good feelings. And so when the people were there, they thought they were making a huge difference. And they were thinking, wow, this is making a huge impact for these folks. Look how happy they are. Um, But the the moment they would leave, the community would no longer use whatever they gave them. They would no longer take up the product or the project that was brought in by that group. And once I saw that happen a few times, I wanted to investigate so I went to one of the other community groups that kind of, you know, would put on this show for the aid groups that would come in. And I said, why do you do this? Like, it's obviously that you, this is not what you need. Your needs are different. Why are you, you know, kind of accommodating? And what they told me was that, look, these folks come in with badly needed resources. And yeah, they're not targeting exactly what we need, but if we tell them, no, we don't want what you're bringing, they're going to go find someone else. 
And so when they come and say, do you want to do Poverty Empowerment Day? We say, yes, of course we want to. Even if that's not the thing that approach we would take or doesn't take into account all our needs, we will say yes, because if we say no, they're going to go find someone else. So sure, when the British group comes in this week, we're going to do you know, that project they want. And a month from now, when the American group or the Swedish group or the Canadian group comes in, we're going to do whatever they want. Because if we don't, we believe they're going to take their time and energy and money that they're bringing us somewhere else. And I could see the negative feedback loop that this was creating, that the community, which was dire for, you know, wanted to improve their situation, were going to try and capture any of the aid or development projects that came their way by catering and saying, of course, we'll do what you're asking. Meanwhile, the aid group, which was, you know, not going to spend the time to live in the community or fully understand the needs, came in, got the kind of good feeling that they were helping, and then they left. And this was part of what really sparked my desire to see a different way of doing good. So I returned from my volunteer experience in Uganda, working at the community level and seeing firsthand what happened when people with all the right attentions designed projects or products or services without the inputs or engagement from the local community. They just fell short. They were not sustainable and they were creating this really negative feedback loop. So on my return from Uganda, I'm sitting at home in Boston and I'm hungry to find, is there another approach out there? That's when I discovered the work of Amy Smith. Amy was a professor and teacher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology or MIT in nearby Cambridge. As I started to learn about her background, I became really inspired. She was a PhD graduate in mechanical engineering from MIT. She went on to do the Peace Corps as a volunteer. Uh, she had grown up in India and had Botswana, and she had this really amazing life experience that had led her to create her program called D-Lab through a philosophy which I would describe as creating simple machines that meet particular needs that are built locally. This was what I think she described at the time as an appropriate technology design approach. And Amy had a lot of momentum behind her as well. She had won in 2004 the MacArthur Fellowship, which is the unofficial uh, genius grant where they provide you with $500,000 in funding for you to put towards your program. And I came in to start to learn about that program, her D-Lab program, which was all about uh, teaching students, you know, some of the brightest engineering students in the whole world about her approach to appropriate technology, getting them out into communities to test that technology, to iterate on it, to learn about the approach and give them a different type of mindset about what it could take to design for the 90%. I really thought... This is very much a different approach that I want to learn more about. So I started going to a lot of the public events that the D-Lab and Amy's program had. 
They had poster sessions. They did demos of their technology. And I was really enthralled by it. And I believe during one of those networking events that I went to, I had heard a rumor that they were looking to hire a project assistant to help them with one of their new endeavors. And once I heard that, I started talking to everyone. I said, okay, who do I talk to about this? I'm really excited about the approach. I, have, I think I have a lot to offer. And I think over time they realized that I wasn't going to be going away and that I was going to keep knocking on their doors. And eventually they said, okay, Joe, let's give you the job. And what we are going to need you to do is to help run Amy's big event called the International Development Design Summit, IDDS. They said this was a event that had launched the year before, and I could help to run the current 2008 version of the event that would be ongoing. I would just be thrown in there and I could help with the logistics. And then my job after that would be to help and run the 2009 version of the event. The IDDS Summit was like a month-long program. It was intense. It was hands-on. Uh, it was run during the summer. So there was a few students involved, but they brought together a diverse group of people from all over the world who were facing common types of challenges at the grassroots level. And they brought them together. And during that month summit, they lived together, split into groups, took on design challenges, they got trainings, they went through a curriculum to learn about the appropriate technology design approach. And by the end of the month-long summit, the idea was they would have prototypes instead of papers. Because this was like an academic-run event, lots of academia, conferences on international development, you know, they produced a paper that everyone signed, a proclamation or something. But the IDDS summit was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be about producing real prototypes of technology that could be used to improve people's lives at the end. So first I participated in the 2008 summit, which again was the second time it had been run. And it was my baptism by fire, as Amy called it. I just got up close and personal to see how this design process worked. And it was collaborative. It was co-creative. It was really based on the needs that were being expressed by the people from the community. They had been vetted and researched before, so there had been some background and understanding of what the challenges were. And I could start to learn and see how this approach was different. After the 2008 event ended, Amy told me that for 2009, the next year, the summit that I would be responsible to really help implement and run would take things to the next level. And how would they do that? Well, the two years before, the summit had been run at MIT. And in Amy's perspective, to really get these designs to be useful and sustainable in the communities, that's where we had to go to create them. So next year's summit would be hosted in Kumasi, Ghana. That's the capital city of the Shanti region in southern Ghana. It's the center of Ashanti culture. It's home to about a million people. It's, I would describe it as a semi-rural urban city in Ghana. We would have 60 people attend that summit from over 30 different countries that we would select over the next year. The summit would last for an entire month 
we would all live together and have to use local resources to build the technologies. And then we would also be able to very, very easily get out into the community and get rapid feedback. So instead of doing design reviews in a classroom, like we had done the last two years, design reviews would be done in the village with the actual users. So it took me an entire year to help prepare for the summit. There was so much that went into it. We did an application process and we selected some amazing people. So I could spend the next few hours breaking down all the stories and inventions and innovations that came out of that 2009 International Development Design Summit in Ghana. In a future episode, I plan to break all of that down and speak with hopefully some of those people themselves. But what I'm going to do on today's episode is I want to bring out for you some of the top lessons in designing for the 90% that I learned during that over month long experience in Ghana. So lesson number one, start with local, then bring in other disciplines and perspectives. The reason that that summit in Ghana had been such a success was because we got as a host the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. This was the top science and engineering school in the country, and it was located in Kumasi. By working with that team, they offered us the facilities and staff and helped us get through all the logistics needed to actually run that summit locally. So we had to start local, and so it wasn't just MIT that hosted that summit. It was the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, and their professors were amazing, warm, welcoming, and when we needed something, they knew where to get it. They knew who to talk to. If we you know, needed to get 80 people to be fed that day, they could help us introduce us to those people. Uh, so number one, if we're going to design for you know the 90%, well, you need to have a local host that understands where you are, your surroundings, and helps you to actually get in there and co-create and design with the local communities. Also locally, this time around, as opposed to the past summits, we would not have the MIT facilities or Home Depot to go out and get materials and tools and maybe other supplies that we needed. And I think that was a huge difference maker, you know, and we have to think creatively and we have to look locally. And luckily in Kumasi, there was a place called Swami Magazine. The first time I heard, I was like, what is Swami Magazine? And they said, well, this is going to be like our Home Depot. And we went over there and it's in this industrialized area with all these different workshops, there's metal engineering, vehicle repairs, furniture building, all this stuff going on. As soon as you get close, it was like that sound I had first heard in D-Lab, but to like the hundredth degree because there are 200,000 people that work in that industrialized zone in Swami Magazine. The reason Swami Magazine became so important to our ability to design for the local community was that in the future, if there were spare parts or a certain type of skilled labor that was needed, the technology that we would design could go back to Swami Magazine, to go back to the people they had met there to get the spare parts and to get the repairs. 
This is one of the biggest problems that I often see in technology projects that do not take into account long-term sustainability is they bring a really, you know, cool widget, uh, shiny technology, and they bring in the community and they had tested it out in their lab, but they had never brought it to a place where it was dusty and where it was, you know, lacked electricity or it didn't have spare parts to drive over or order on Amazon would not be possible. So having Swami Magazine and integrating them as like our key partner in some of the, the technologies we're building is a illustrative point of why when you design locally and you bring in the local partners, you can be more sustainable and you can see more long-term use of some of your things that you create, some of the things that you try and deploy. One other key local asset that made the designs during that summit have a huge impact was that we had community leaders who were from the Ashanti region that came to be part of the summit. So we had people from all over the world, but we also had these local village leaders and community leaders. And what they helped us understand was the cultural context. They helped us to see what kinds of you know, attitudes and mindsets of our users would we have to understand and design for if we wanted these solutions to be picked up and used. Again, when you are not fully co-creating and designing with that cultural context and local mindset in mind, it's another reason why projects and products fall short. If you don't, you know, customize and adapt, then you could bring in something that, again, maybe back where you live would work beautifully and would be widely accepted. But if there are different norms in those communities, the technologies, the services, whatever you're trying to do, isn't going to get picked up. So having those local community leaders as part of our design group also made a huge difference and is a, a big lesson I would take away is that, you know, they may not seem like, oh, this person's not an innovator. They've never, you know, gone and created technology before. But no, that person who is your intended end user, who's living in that cultural and community context, is absolutely critical that their voice is put in from the very beginning of the design process. So we had this really deep local you know, force behind the designs we were doing. And then on top of that, with that foundation in place, we brought in innovators and engineers and tinkerers and thinkers from all over the world who were facing similar problems. We had people from the U.S., from India, from Brazil, from Colombia, and I could go on and on and on because we had people from 30 different countries. And what this does is it adds a extra layer on top of that local understanding to bring in a mix of new ideas and fresh thinking to design dynamically. Now, you can't just bring in this kind of international perspective without the local being there first. So the local comes first, but once you have that foundation, then you can bring in an international group, people with different kinds of experiences, and then at the intersection of that local experience 
and others who are faced in other locations can really help to identify innovative designs that are you know fresh and new but also fit that local context. So that's lesson number one. If you're going out to design for the 90%, start with local and then bring in other disciplines and perspectives. Lesson number two, to design for the 90%, you have to go the extra mile. It's not enough to put all your time and bring in great people and design it in a lab or some offsite location in a sterile environment. It's not enough to fly in, deliver it, and then fly out and think it's going to last. To really create something that is going to be sustainable for this type of group that we're talking about, you truly have to co-create it with them, and that is no small feat. So at the IDDS Summit, we had a really powerful, dedicated organizing team. I believe it was at least 10 to 15 of us who included MIT staff, past participants who had been part of the, the two summits before, and also some of those local leaders. We were all had come together. We actually arrived a week before the summit began to get all the logistics covered. Uh, we, I think we had had many, many calls as well, lots of Skype calls uh, of people uh, who were at all different times a day, but we had done the hard work to prepare Amy had gone with some of her D-Lab students actually a few months before to Ghana to identify some of the, the sites and to really research and better understand the problems and the challenges that we would try to design against during the summit. And during the summit itself, we literally went those extra miles by not just designing at the dorm, at the university we're staying, but we also did village visits. And these village visits were logistically one of the most difficult things I've ever had to organize because we had about five different teams of 10 people each going to five different villages in different parts of Ghana. And they were going to these places where it was very rural. There might not be electricity. There might not even be enough beds. There was no hotel out there. This is not a place where you go for you know a tour. And so I remember still putting mattresses on pickup trucks and renting out minivans and sending everyone. And even when they got there, there was a whole protocol that we had learned we had to do where the, the village elder, the village king would have to do a ceremony to welcome everybody. And it was all orchestrated just to talk to them about their challenges that was the first village visit. Then they had come back. Then they had built prototypes, early versions of prototypes of the solutions, and they brought them back to the community for a design review. So I've been part of a few design reviews in the classroom or in the lab. I had never been to a design review like that where you're talking in the middle of a rural village with the chickens running everywhere and goats and the whole community coming around and looking at these technologies and asking questions. It was incredible. It was really going that extra mile. And then at the end, we identified some people from those villages 
that we had visited and had been part of the design review to come back to the campus on the last day to be part of the final presentations in a celebration. This is an example of going that extra mile to design for the 90%. There's a lot of stories during that summit that I could tell you where we went above and beyond what an ordinary person might think it could take to try and show someone what a solution would look like or have them get inputs to into it. So if you're thinking, I want to go out and I want to innovate and develop things that are going to help people in some of these vulnerable and hard-to-reach communities, then you need to know you're going to need to go that extra mile. Resource it properly. Take the time to understand it, to prepare, to bring together the right team, to understand the cultural context, and to gauge them deeply. So that's lesson number two about going that extra mile. Lesson number three be culturally significant, then inspire to break norms. So I mentioned those village visits and getting those inputs to make sure that we would be culturally appropriate and culturally significant was absolutely critical. I remember there being certain, you know, adjustments to the designs or the way it would be called or promoted or talked about the way that it would be communicated to the community around what it would be used for that made it culturally significant. And this is where I think a lot of us who maybe have had a lot of education and a lot of training outside of the field in the classroom, you need to, to you know, bring in everything you've learned in the textbooks. But when you go out there, you need to be humble and you need to really think about I need to listen and find out the cultural significance of what I'm doing. You'll need to adjust not for what you think is best or what you think the meaning of it is, but adjust for what the end user who you hope will pick up this product or take part in this project or service. You need to empathize and understand what's the cultural significance locally for them. You have to start there. If you don't start there, all your good intentions will go for naught because you can think, well, I really thought about this and I really created something that I think and, and some of my colleagues think has a lot of power and could change the world and could change this community. But if it doesn't have any meaning locally, it's going to go nowhere. So you have to be culturally significant and you have to adapt and understand the cultural you know, ramifications of whatever you're trying to do. So you have to be culturally significant and then you can inspire to break norms. And there is one particular story from my IDDS experience that exemplifies what can happen when you break norms. So at, this actually came at the very end of the summit when all the participants had finished their designs, they had presented, everyone had taken a deep breath, and it was time to celebrate. We had all actually traveled together as a big group from Kumasi down to Accra, which is the capital of Ghana. And the next day, people would start flying out, and this was our last night to kind of be together and celebrate everything we had accomplished. 
throughout the whole month-long thing, all we, I think, had eaten most of the time had been Ghanaian food. As well, there had, we had put some cook stoves in people's, you know, dorm rooms, and we did a little bit of cooking. But at that point, most people were a little bit tired of just having the local food. So one of my co-organizers and I, he was from northern India, went out to look for a restaurant where we could have the final day celebration. And we found this Indian restaurant that was willing to give us a really good price. They were going to play music. We were going to have a buffet. And we were going to serve all these Indian dishes. So that night, everyone comes in to this Indian restaurant. And it's like one of the like most emotional celebrations I've been a part of. Everyone's singing, they're dancing, they're eating this food. And I'll never forget that one of the village elders, one of, I think he was like a king, actually, of one of the villages where he had done those visits, came up to me and said, Joe, I never thought that I would taste food like this. This food that you're serving here, it's new flavors that I've never had before. And this music you're playing and all these people, is I'm just overwhelmed. And I want to say that this is one of the most powerful experiences I have ever had. And that really struck me because it was a comparison to the other celebration and the other commentaries that I had seen while I was in Uganda, where it was superficial that, yeah, they would sing and that they would dance together a little bit, but really there was no true connection. Neither party in Uganda, neither the local or the international folks wanted to break their norms. They were going to hold on to it and play the roles that they thought they were supposed to play. And now here I was in a different situation with a different kind of celebration, with the music playing, with different, you know, people trying food they had never had before, flavors that they never thought. And I really felt thinking in a totally different and new way about what they could do for their communities and who they could work with. And that was really the powerful moment that got me to that lesson number three is that yes, you need to be culturally significant, but then you can inspire to break norms. So that's my story of the International Development Design Summit from 2009. It was an amazing experience, one that has helped shape my career. Before we end, 10 years later after that summit, where is IDDS today? Well, I'm happy to share that that annual conference is still going. To date, over the last 12 years, there have been 25 summits in more than 11 different countries. All of these summits have been hosted by local community groups and local organizations with organizers who took part of IDDS summits from around the world. They all have that mindset and expectation of, what it's going to take to go that extra mile so that that impact can take hold. And even this year, in 2019, the summit will be in Uganda. And I would say for myself, 10 years later, what I remember the most are the people. The incredible people from the 30 different countries and all over 
that Kumasigan area that came together for that summit. They're still my friends today. And over the years, I've actually gone to visit a few of them. And in future episodes, maybe I'll go into that story. But for today, that's it. That's our episode of Let's Break Good. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side. I don't want to live alone. Hey, so I want to thank again the International Development Design Summit team, the steering committee, in particular, Amy Smith, who still sits on that committee. I also want to thank the people that gave me that opportunity to work and learn at MIT. That's the MIT Edgerton Center, the International Development Innovation Network, the D-Lab, and of course, IDDS. I also want to thank my hosts from that original volunteer experience in Uganda the local community members that helped me to see what was really going on that included the Red Cross staff there and my dear friend, Dr. John Baptiste Niwagaba, who helped to be my shepherd to understand what was really going on and to question the aid programs that were happening. So again, thank you to all that were involved in the IDDS Summit and good luck to those that are carrying it forward today.